Hello, and welcome to Leftist Reading, a podcast where I'm a leftist and I read things. Today we're continuing with The Wretched of the Earth. We're currently in the middle of a chapter that's been discussing the ways in which ousting colonial powers does not immediately create a more fair and equitable system, and in fact some ways can develop much worse. Because you end up with a bourgeoisie that is local and of the country, but is effectively still exploiting them, some ways exploiting them worse, and just trying to do their best to mimic the kind of indulgence that the Western colonial powers have. So, let's continue with the chapter and learn more about it. From the chauvinism of the Senegalese to the tribalism of the Yolofs is not a big step, for in fact, everywhere that the national bourgeoisie has failed to break through to the people as a whole, to enlighten them, and to consider all problems in the first place with regard to them, a failure due to the bourgeoisie's attitude of mistrust, and to the haziness of its political tenets, everywhere that national bourgeoisie has shown itself incapable of extending its vision of the world sufficiently, we observe a falling back toward old tribal attitudes, and, furious and sick at heart, we perceive that race feeling in its most exacerbated form is triumphing. Since the sole motto of the bourgeoisie is replace the foreigner, and because it hastens in every walk of life to secure justice for itself and to take over the posts that the foreigner has vacated, the small people of the nation, taxi drivers, cake sellers, and boot blacks, will be equally quick to insist that the Dahomans go home to their own country or will even go further and demand that the Fulbi and the Pils return to their jungle or their mountains. It is from this viewpoint that we must interpret the fact that in young, independent countries, here and there feudalism triumphs. We know that colonial domination has marked certain regions out for privilege. The colony's economy is not integrated into that of the nation as a whole. It is still organized in order to complete the economy of the different mother countries. Colonialism hardly ever exploits the whole of a country. It contents itself with bringing to light the natural resources, which it extracts and exports to meet the needs of the mother country's industries, thereby allowing certain sectors of the colony to become relatively rich. But the rest of the colony follows its path of underdevelopment and poverty, or at all events, sinks into it more deeply. Immediately after independence, the nationals who live in the more prosperous regions realize their good luck and show a primary and profound reaction in refusing to feed the other nationals. The districts which are rich in groundnuts, in cocoa, and in diamonds come to the forefront and dominate the empty panorama which the rest of the nation presents. The nationals of these rich regions look upon the others with hatred and find in them envy and covetousness and homicidal impulses old rivalries, which were there before colonialism, old interracial hatreds come to the surface. The Balubas refuse to feed the Luluas, Katanga forms itself into a state, and Albert Kalonji gets himself crowned King of South Kasai. African unity, that vague formula, yet one to which the men and women of Africa were passionately attached, and whose operative value served to bring immense pressure to bear on colonialism. African unity takes off the mask, and crumbles into regionalism inside the hollow shell of nationality itself. 
the national bourgeoisie, since it is strung up to defend its immediate interests and sees no further than the end of its nose, reveals itself incapable of simply bringing national unity into being, or of building up the nation on a stable and productive basis. The National Front, which has forced colonialism to withdraw, cracks up and wastes the victory it has gained. This merciless fight, engaged upon by races and tribes, and this aggressive anxiety to occupy the posts left vacant by the departure of the foreigner, will equally give rise to religious rivalries. In the country districts and the bush, minor confraternities, local religions, and maraboutic cults will show a new vitality and will once more take up their round of excommunications. In the big towns, on the level of the administrative classes, we will observe the coming to grips of the two great revealed religions, Islam and Catholicism. Colonialism, which had been shaken to its very foundations by the birth of African unity, recovers its balance and tries now to break that will to unity by using all the movement's weaknesses. Colonialism will set the African peoples moving, by revealing to them the existence of spiritual rivalries. In Senegal, it is the newspaper New Africa, which week by week distills hatred of Islam and of the Arabs. The Lebanese, in whose hands is the greater part of the small trading enterprises on the western seaboard, are marked out for national obloquy. The missionaries find it opportune to remind the masses that long before the advent of European colonialism, the great African empires were disrupted by the Arab invasion. There is no hesitation in saying that it was the Arab occupation which paved the way for European colonialism. Arab imperialism is commonly spoken of, and the cultural imperialism of Islam is condemned. Muslims are usually kept out of the more important posts. In other regions, the reverse is the case, and it is the native Christians who are considered as conscious, objective enemies of national independence. Colonialism pulls every string shamelessly, and is only too content to set at loggerheads those Africans who only yesterday were leagued against the settlers. The idea of a Saint Bartholomew takes shape in certain minds, and the advocates of colonialism laugh to themselves derisively when they hear magnificent declarations about African unity. Inside a single nation, religion splits up the people into different spiritual communities, all of them kept up and stiffened by colonialism and its instruments. Totally unexpected events break out here and there. In regions where Catholicism or Protestantism predominates, we see the Muslim minorities flinging themselves with unaccustomed ardor into their devotions. The Islamic feast days are revived, and the Muslim religion defends itself inch by inch, against the violent absolutism of the Catholic faith. Ministers of state are heard to say for the benefit of certain individuals that if they are not content, that they have only to go to Cairo. Sometimes, American Protestantism transplants its anti-Catholic prejudices into African soil, and keeps up tribal rivalries through religion. Taking the continent as a whole, this religious tension may be responsible for the revival of the commonest racial feeling. Africa is divided into black and white, and the names that are substituted, Africa South of the Sahara, Africa North of the Sahara, do not manage to hide this latent racism. 
Here it is affirmed that white Africa has a thousand-year-old tradition of culture, that she is Mediterranean, that she is a continuation of Europe, and that she shares in Greco-Latin civilization. Black Africa is looked on as a region that is inert, brutal, uncivilized, in a word, savage. There, all day long you may hear unpleasant remarks about veiled women, polygamy, and the supposed disdain the Arabs have for the feminine sex. All such remarks are reminiscent in their aggressiveness of those who are so often coming from the settlers' lips. The national bourgeoisie of each of these two great regions, which has totally assimilated colonialist thought in its most corrupt form, takes over from the Europeans and establishes in the continent a racial philosophy which is extremely harmful for the future of Africa. By its laziness and will to imitation, it promotes the ingrafting and stiffening of racism which was characteristic of the colonial era. Thus, it is by no means astonishing to hear in a country that calls itself African remarks which are neither more nor less than racist, and to observe the existence of a paternalist behavior which gives you the bitter impression that you are in Paris, Brussels, or London. In certain regions of Africa, driveling paternalism with regard to the blacks and the loathsome idea derived from Western culture that the black man is impervious to logic and the sciences reign in all their nakedness. Sometimes it may be ascertained that the black minorities are hemmed in by a kind of semi-slavery, which renders legitimate that species of wariness, or in other words, mistrust, which the countries of black Africa feel with regard to the countries of white Africa. It is all too common that a citizen of black Africa hears himself called a Negro by the children when walking in the streets of a big town in white Africa, or finds that civil servants address him in pidgin English. Yes, unfortunately it is not unknown that students from black Africa who attend secondary schools north of the Sahara, hear their schoolfellows asking if in their country there are houses, if they know what electricity is, or if they practice cannibalism in their families. Yes, unfortunately, it is not unknown that in certain regions north of the Sahara, Africans coming from countries south of the Sahara meet nationals who implore them to take them anywhere at all on condition we meet Negroes. In parallel fashion, in certain young states of black Africa, members of parliament or even ministers maintain without a trace of humour that the danger is not at all of a reoccupation of their country by colonialism, but of an eventual invasion by those vandals of Arabs coming from the north. As we see it, the bankruptcy of the bourgeoisie is not apparent in the economic field only. They have come to power in the name of a narrow nationalism and representing a race. They will prove themselves incapable of triumphantly putting into practice a program with even a minimum humanist content. In spite of fine-sounding declarations which are devoid of meaning since the speakers bandy about in irresponsible fashion phrases that come straight out of European treatises on morals and political philosophy. When the bourgeoisie is strong, when it can arrange everything and everybody to serve its power, it does not hesitate to affirm positively certain democratic ideas which claim to be universally applicable. There must be very exceptional circumstances if such a bourgeoisie, solidly based economically, is forced into denying its own humanist ideology. 
The Western bourgeoisie, though fundamentally racist, most often manages to mask this racism by a multiplicity of nuances, which allow it to preserve intact its proclamation of mankind's outstanding dignity. The Western bourgeoisie has prepared enough fences and railings to have no real fear of the competition of those whom it exploits and holds in contempt. Western bourgeois racial prejudice, as regards the N-word and the Arab, is a racism of contempt. It is a racism which minimizes what it hates. Bourgeois ideology, however, which is the proclamation of an essential equality between men, manages to appear logical in its own eyes by inviting the sub-men to become human, and to take as their prototype Western humanity, as incarnated in the Western bourgeoisie. The racial prejudice of the young national bourgeoisie is a racism of defense, based on fear. Essentially, it is no different from vulgar tribalism, or the rivalries between septs or confraternities. We may understand why keen-witted international observers have hardly taken seriously the great flights of oratory about African unity, for it is true that there are so many cracks in that unity visible to the naked eye that it is only reasonable to insist that all these contradictions ought to be resolved before the day of unity can come. The peoples of Africa have only recently come to know themselves. They have decided, in the name of the whole continent, to weigh in strongly against the colonial regime. Now the nationalist bourgeoisies, who in region after region hasten to make their own fortunes and to set up a national system of exploitation, do their utmost to put obstacles in the path of this utopia. The national bourgeoisies, who are quite clear as to what their objectives are, have decided to bar the way to that unity, to that coordinated effort on the part of 250 million men to triumph over stupidity, hunger, and inhumanity at one and the same time. This is why we must understand that African unity can only be achieved through the upward thrust of the people and under the leadership of the people, that is to say, in defiance of the interests of the bourgeoisie. As regards internal affairs and in the sphere of institutions, the national bourgeoisie will give equal proof of its incapacity. In a certain number of underdeveloped countries, the parliamentary game is faked from the beginning. Powerless economically, unable to bring about the existence of coherent social relations, and standing on the principle of its domination as a class, the bourgeoisie chooses the solution that seems to it the easiest, that of the single party. It does not yet have the quiet conscience and the calm that economic power and the control of the state machine alone can give. It does not create a state that reassures the ordinary citizen, but rather one that rouses his anxiety. The state, which by its strength and discretion ought to inspire confidence and disarm and lull everybody to sleep, on the contrary, seeks to impose itself in spectacular fashion. It makes a display. It jostles people and bullies them, thus intimating to the citizen that he is in continual danger. The single party is the modern form of the dictatorship of the bourgeoisie, unmasked, unpainted, unscrupulous, and cynical. It is true that such a dictatorship does not go very far. It cannot halt the processes of its own contradictions. 
since the bourgeoisie has not the economic means to ensure its domination and to throw a few crumbs to the rest of the country, since, moreover, it is preoccupied with filling its pockets as rapidly as possible but also as prosaically as possible, the country sinks all the more deeply into stagnation. And in order to hide this stagnation and to mark this regression, to reassure itself and to give itself something to boast about, the bourgeoisie can find nothing better to do than to erect grandiose buildings in the capital and to lay out money on what are called prestige expenses. The national bourgeoisie turns its back more and more on the interior and on the real facts of its undeveloped country and tends to look toward the former mother country and the foreign capitalists who count on its obliging compliance as it does not share its profits with the people, and in no way allows them to enjoy any of the dues that are being paid to it by the big foreign companies, it will discover the need for a popular leader, to whom will fall the dual role of stabilizing the regime and of perpetuating the domination of the bourgeoisie. The bourgeois dictatorship of underdeveloped countries draws its strength from the existence of a leader, we know that in the well-developed countries, the bourgeois dictatorship is the result of the economic power of the bourgeoisie. In the underdeveloped countries, on the contrary, the leader stands for moral power, in whose shelter the thin and poverty-stricken bourgeoisie of the young nation decides to get rich. The people who, for years on end, have seen this leader and heard him speak, who from a distance in a kind of dream have followed his contests with the colonial power, spontaneously put their trust in this patriot. Before independence, the leader generally embodies the aspirations of the people for independence, political liberty, and national dignity. But as soon as independence is declared, far from embodying in concrete form the needs of the people in what touches bread, land, and the restoration of the country to the sacred hands of the people, the leader will reveal his inner purpose to become the general president of that company of profiteers impatient for their returns, which constitutes the national bourgeoisie. In spite of his frequently honest conduct and his sincere declarations, the leader as seen objectively is the fierce defender of these interests, today combined, of the national bourgeoisie and the ex-colonial companies. His honesty, which is his soul's true bent, crumbles away little by little. His contact with the masses is so unreal that he comes to believe that his authority is hated, and that the services that he has rendered his country are being called in question. The leader judges the ingratitude of the masses harshly, and every day that passes, ranges himself a little more resolutely on the side of the exploiters. He therefore knowingly becomes the aider and abettor of the young bourgeoisie, which is plunging into the mire of corruption and pleasure. The economic channels of the young state sink back inevitably into neo-colonialist lines. The national economy, formerly protected, is today literally controlled. The budget is balanced through loans and gifts, while every three or four months the chief ministers themselves or else their governmental delegations, come to the erstwhile mother countries or elsewhere, fishing for capital. The former colonial power increases its demands, accumulates concessions, and guarantees and takes fewer and fewer pains to mask the hold it has over the national government. 
The people stagnate deplorably in unbearable poverty. Slowly they awaken to the unutterable treason of their leaders. This awakening is all the more acute in that the bourgeoisie is incapable of learning its lesson. The distribution of wealth that it affects is not spread out between a great many sectors. It is not ranged among different levels, nor does it set up a hierarchy of half-tones. The new caste is an affront all the more disgusting in that the immense majority, nine-tenths of the population, continue to die of starvation. The scandalous enrichment, speedy and pitiless, of this caste is accompanied by a decisive awakening on the part of the people, and a growing awareness that promises stormy days to come. The bourgeois caste, that section of the nation which annexes, for its own profit, all the wealth of the country, by a kind of unexpected logic, will pass disparaging judgments upon the other Negroes and the other Arabs that more often than not are reminiscent of the racist doctrines of the former representatives of the colonial power. At one and the same time, the poverty of the people, the immoderate money-making of the bourgeois caste, and its widespread scorn for the rest of the nation, will harden thought and action. But such threats will lead to the reaffirmation of authority and the appearance of dictatorship. The leader, who has behind him a lifetime of political action and devoted patriotism, constitutes a screen between the people and the rapacious bourgeoisie, since he stands surety for the ventures of that caste, and closes his eyes to their insolence, their mediocrity, and their fundamental immorality. He acts as a breaking power on the awakening consciousness of the people. He comes to the aid of the bourgeois caste and hides his maneuvers from the people, thus becoming the most eager worker in the task of mystifying and bewildering the masses. Every time he speaks to the people, he calls to mind his often heroic life, the struggles he has led in the name of the people, and the victories that in their name he has achieved thereby intimating clearly to the masses that they ought to go on putting their confidence in him. There are plenty of examples of African patriots who've introduced into the cautious political advance of their elders a decisive style characterized by his nationalist outlook. These men came from the backwoods, and they proclaimed, to the scandal of the dominating power and the shame of the nationals of the capital, that they came from the backwoods and that they spoke in the name of Negroes. These men, who have sung the praises of their race, who have taken upon themselves the whole burden of the past, complete with cannibalism and degeneracy, find themselves today, alas, at the head of a team of administrators which turns its back on the jungle and which proclaims that the vocation of the people is to obey, to go on obeying, and to be obedient till the end of time. The leader pacifies the people. For years on end, after independence has been won, we see him, incapable of urging on the people to a concrete task, unable really to open the future to them, or of flinging them into the path of national reconstruction, that is to say, of their own reconstruction. We see him reassessing the history of independence and recalling the sacred unity of the struggle for liberation. The leader, 
because he refuses to break up the national bourgeoisie, asks the people to fall back into the past and to become drunk on the remembrance of the epoch, which led up to independence. The leader, seen objectively, brings the people to a halt and persists in either expelling them from history or preventing them from taking root in it. During the struggle for liberation, the leader awakened the people and promised them a forward march, heroic and unmitigated. Today, he uses every means to put them to sleep, and three or four times a year asks them to remember the colonial period and to look back on the long way they have come since then. And that's going to do it for this week. If you have any questions, comments, corrections, suggestions, you can email leftistreading at gmail.com or contact the show on Twitter at leftistreading. Our intro and outro music is Decisions by Eric Medias. You can find it and more of his work on soundimage.org. And this show is hosted on the Abnormal Mapping Network. You can go to abnormalmapping.com to find this and lots of other leftist podcasts about books, video games, movies, anime. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening, and keep reading. <laughs>